Welcome to Holy C of E, a podcast where we talk about what it means to be a Catholic Christian in the Church of England. I'm Clinton Collister, and I'm here with my fellow host, the now published author, J.A. Franklin. How are you doing, Father Jamie? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, I yeah, I'm very very excited to be to be a published author. It uh, feels kind of strange, but but nice. I got my books uh, on Wednesday, I think it was, and unpacked them. Well, I've only got well, I've got six free copies, so I, I I got one of them out, and the other ones are still in the box. But it's, it looks nice, you know. It's 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 a nice looking book, so I'm I'm very happy about that. Yes. Uh, well, that's exciting. And can you mention what the cover looks like and what is the title of this <laughs> new book that's come out? Well, the, the the title is Charles Taylor and Anglican Theology, Aesthetic Ecclesiology, and it's published by Palgrave Macmillan. It's in a series that's edited by Mark Chapman, who's the vice principal of Cudston, Ripon College Cudston. Uh, Theological Training College in Oxford, uh, and the series is called Pathways for Ecumenical and Interreligious Dialogue. I'm not really sure what my book has to do with ecumenical and interreligious dialogue, but uh, maybe Mark has some insight into that, which I which I don't which I don't have. But uh, yeah, and the 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 um, the, um, the the cover is a kind of um, what do you call it? A sort of um, it's a number of kind of arches with um, with pillars on them, and it's uh, it's at an angle, at an oblique angle, with the sun com- coming through. Um, so it's kind of um, redolent of you know ecclesiastical architecture, prayer, um, monastic life. Maybe I'm not really sure. Well, 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 slow down. I mean, I, I can venture a guess as to what it has to do with ecumenical endeavors. They they gave you a a title. It's a little bit different than the one you initially proposed, right? So what was the title that you proposed for this book? Well, well my PhD, which it's taken from, is called Aesthetic Ecclesiology, an Anglican Theological Response to the Work of Charles Taylor on the Secular, which pretty much says exactly what my dissertation was about. Yes. And so what, what's the new name that they gave you to explain oh, the new, the new what one things is, are about? Well, the new one is Charles Taylor and Anglican Theology. Aesthetic right. ecclesiology, yeah. So they they wanted to introduce that. So the, yeah, so I'd say they simplified it, but they put the ecumenical relationship front and center, right? So yeah. Charles Taylor, a Roman Catholic, uh, yes, philosopher and and writer on sociology and so on, and and how his work relates to these Anglican uh, the, theologians thought. So so I don't know. I mean, is do you think that's where? the inspiration comes from the connection point yeah yeah i mean i hope so i mean so we'll we'll talk about this in a minute but um you know this is a book which i i is mainly for i mean it's 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 probably most pertinent to catholic small c catholic christians but i hope that it has lots of relevance to all kinds of christians who might be interested in the secular and um, the aesthetic and sacraments and things like that. So uh, hopefully it's hopefully it's something, although written from an Anglican perspective, it's it's something which is relevant to to all Christians who are at least half interested in any of those things. So it seems like the heart of your title are, are, are the, the two words aesthetic ecclesiology. Yeah. Can you talk about what those words mean and why you wanted to explore aesthetic ecclesiology for a few years of your life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, when I when I did my MA 
It started really when I did my MA, which was at King's College London. And I did that in uh, biblical studies and theology. And I, for a while, I'd been interested in in the aesthetic aspects of Christianity in the church, but I hadn't really had any sort of formal education. It had been something that just sort of occurred to me, you know, very interested in cathedrals, Gothic cathedrals and things like, you know, I lived just down the road from Winchester Cathedral at the time. And um, I was, I was um, part of charismatic evangelical church. And um, one of the things I always wondered is whether or not we might be missing something in terms of the aesthetic dimension uh, it seemed to me that although there were dimensions of that expression of worship, which you could relate to the aesthetic, for example, there's a very strong emphasis on music and singing, which is an aesthetic thing. Um, nevertheless, there was there, there was no reckoning with the visual aspect. Um, and, you know, you'd meet in in buildings which, you know, ex bingo halls or cinemas or warehouses or whatever. And it seemed to me that you know, going to a church like that, which was, it was literally an ex-bingo hall. And then down the road was Winchester Cathedral. I suppose there was a kind of disjunction in my mind and I wanted to explore that a little bit more. So I went to King's and I did um, some, I did some work there with um, Ben Quash, who's the professor for Christianity and the Arts, I think it's called, his mm -hmm. title is. Um, and so I did his module on beauty in Western theology and he supervised my dissertation, which was on apologetics. And um, in that in that dissertation, I basically argued that um, the sort of hyper rational approach to apologetics um, might not be the best way of approaching the the topic in uh, Western modernity, because people are less interested in rational argument and more interested in the aesthetic component of, of of existence, I suppose you might say, and so um, so so that's that's that was kind of um, something that I I traced genealogically. I was just starting to read, you know, all this stuff, radical orthodoxy, and David Bentley Hart. I read a lot of for the first time in that year, and um, and yeah, so that that's where it started really. And then and then after I'd done that MA, I started to develop my reading around the same sort of subjects um oh van bolters hansas van bolters was another theologian i read quite a lot around that time roman catholic theologian of the 20th century writes writes a lot about beauty and so on um so i started to develop all that stuff and then i i was fortunate enough to get into oxford and this project uh, project kind of developed from there but as as you know clinton at the beginning of um a phd you don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to do and so um, this was this was something which developed over over the course of, I would say, you know, the first 18 months of my PhD, this kind of fully fledged argument and, and the decision to put Charles Taylor up front and central in it as well. So, yeah. OK, so it seems like on one hand, you're identifying a disjuncture between your experiences, a charismatic Christian who valued music and artistic forms in in that particular genre but not the the sort of cathedral or the mosaic or the icon or the painting or these visual forms but but it also seems like you're pointing toward a different aspect of your research the focus is on the question of why many people don't believe in god or want to participate in christianity in 
nations where they almost universally once did. So mm. how does how do these two things relate or how, how did you decide you wanted to look into the connection between them? Yeah, so yeah, I'm just I'm just I mean, that's a very good question. So hang on, let's let's clarify what the question is. So it's about the relationship of the non-emphasis on the visual aesthetic and the decline of religious belief is that is that so 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 i guess my the way i'm seeing it is on one hand you're looking at christian traditions broadly and you're saying okay some christian traditions that seem to be really emphasizing um, evangelism and outreach and growing the church uh, they are neglecting the the visual and sensible side of the faith Yes. Whereas some more historic um, uh, yeah. traditions d- do seem to have a stronger connection to yeah. the visual, yeah, yeah. yet they don't seem as interested in apologetics or evangelism okay. necessarily. And so it yeah. seems like y- your, um, yeah. your research wanted to kind of bring these two things together or try to figure out how it all fit together. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I've got you. I've got you. Yeah. So so let's let's start with the first part. Um, so why is it that, you know, let's talk, you know, broad brush strokes here, but sure. um evangelicalism is, you know, it's very good on um preaching the gospel and uh reaching out and uh all that kind of stuff. Less good on the aesthetic stuff. Why is that? Well, well, m- my answer uh is that it is in this aspect probably more influenced by secular modernity than it's aware of. So I think it's an, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's, it's inheriting the kind of rationalism of the enlightenment in a way, which in a way which it probably doesn't realize. And so, so there's a, there's an emphasis, there's a, there's a, a significant emphasis on rationality on word-based and, and sort of, uh, word-based communication cognitive styles of communication but there's very very little on what you might call the kind of um, aesthetic or effective styles of um, of communication communication is not really the right word but but you know expression of christianity so i think so my my view is a lot of the time the evangelical church is actually more complicit with secular modernity than it than it actually realizes another another component of this for me is the attitude to the past in evangelicalism which is often one of well uh, all we need to do is go back to the first century because the church has essentially been in error uh, for 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 18 centuries now that that I'm, i know i'm talking in broad brushstrokes here but this is this is something that i've encountered a lot of the time it's not it's not indicative of sophisticated styles of evangelicalism or, or sophisticated thinkers within evangelicalism, but it is nevertheless one of its one of its aspects in a popular form. Now, for me, that's that is that is analogous to secular liberalism, which says you know something terrible happened in the first century, i.e., you know Christianity, and then there was a then there was this great dark age until whenever you know fourteenth, fifteenth century Renaissance, and then eventually the Enlightenment, and now here we are at the zenith of history. And so we don't need we don't we no longer need the past because because the past is darkness. And I think sometimes a lot of the time evangelicalism buys into that. So that that would be my my answer to that part of it. The thing about Catholicism 
not not emphasizing preaching to be honest with you i don't know why that is i wonder whether and it's hard to say really i mean i'd be interested to hear your 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 answer to it clinton but but in my view there should be no reason whatsoever because because catholicism wants to look back to the tradition of the church and to what it's inherited now when i read the church fathers I don't see a, a lack of emphasis on doctrine or preaching or evangelism or anything. I see a strong emphasis on all of those things. And even in the Middle Ages, where things may have been going slightly off track in, in certain ways, you still have orders like the Dominican order of preachers and, you know, Thomas Aquinas and, and all of that stuff. So for me, it's quite mysterious. And even just bring it closer to home, you know, the Oxford movement, the early Oxford movement, they did not uh, not emphasize preaching and, and teaching and evangelism. Uh, they were they were they were doing all that stuff and and they had this great emphasis on uh, social outreach as well you know the slum priests and everything like that so i don't know why i mean maybe have you got have you got any sort of any ideas yourself well i i guess that leads us to another significant portion of your of your story and and of your book this problem of secularism right so it seems like these tradition traditional um, branches of the church felt this uh, I, I don't know the, the force of secularism in significant ways and it, it it seems like that might relate to I don't know liberalism or naturalism entering in and undermining the proclamation of the gospel and fidelity to the the um theology of the church i i, I don't know maybe uh, wh what do you think is does it does that relate possibly when we when we're talking about um it's it's important to clarify which what are we talking about specifically in terms of are we still talking about evangelicalism here are we talking about anglo-catholicism or oh i thought you were trying to shift our attention to the catholic side of things yeah, yeah, it yeah. Seemed like you were saying that the strength of evangelicalism is emphasis on um biblical authority evangelism and good preaching uh, but yeah. a weakness that it doesn't attend to the beautiful or the sensible uh, as ways that god yeah, yeah. reveals himself um, whereas you're saying for some reason it seems like even though yeah. catholics definitely recognize the importance of the beautiful and the sensible in terms of god's revelation they don't always put the same amount of emphasis on um, the proclamation of the gospel or uh, making disciples as they once did. And yeah. so I was just wondering if this relates to the problem of secularism that you explore from various angles in the book. Well, it might do, but, but I, I find it hard to see how, because, and, and you, I mean, it may, it may be just that there's something that I haven't, you know, there's a thought that I haven't connected there, but, but my, my sort of, um, my thing about the secular is that there's this disjunction. Well, this this is the thing I'm picking up from Charles Taylor, I suppose, is that there's this kind of disjunction between nature and grace or between the imminent and the transcendent in the secular, um, yes. which Taylor, I think I'm pretty sure he kind of demonstrates this, you know, as coming out of the, the late medieval period and into into early modernity. So in the secular, you've got this you've got this uh, cleavage between between the imminent and the transcendent and my, um, a central part of my argument is that um is that this applies to the aesthetic dimension as well that we find it hard to 
um, account for the aesthetic in modernity because we've divorced it from the transcendent. And so it, 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 creates, it creates this kind of problem for us where, where we want the aesthetic dimension of life, but we can't really account for it because it seems so, it seems so natural that there should be some kind of transcendent component to it or there should be some kind of depth to it. Which, which to me fits with that kind of critique of evangelicalism. But, but the, the thing about the Catholic thing is that the aesthetic is still there, isn't it? Um, it's still very much there. Um, I, maybe what, what the Catholic world needs to do is to kind of um, embellish the, the sort of aesthetic aspects of its practice with, a, with an orthodox metaphysics. I, I don't really know. I wonder the thing about biblical authority and preaching. I wonder whether that's more an identity issue for the a sort of inter 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 traditional identity issue for Anglo Catholicism. And this this so not directly relevant to my book, but I wonder whether that's more about not knowing where one source of authority actually is. Um, and uh, and this is something we've talked about on the show quite a lot, isn't it? How a lot of the time, Anglo-Catholicism seems to be a bit confused about, well, you know, is the Bible our authority? You know, is it the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church in the present day? Is it uh, the traditional sources of authority, which we could look at through the prism of the, the Vicentian canon? You know, what all people have believed at all times and all places and so on and so forth. So I wonder whether it's because of that, Clinton. Do you think that that's, do you think that that's probably a good shout? That's that's a fair point. And I didn't mean to take us off track of okay. what yeah. your book is actually focused upon, although you do you do engage with significant Anglo-Catholic thinkers, John Milbank and Rowan Williams. And so I suppose we'll get to that in due time. Um, but to, to focus on the insight that your book uh, centers upon, why do you think that Christians need to resource uh, an an emphasis on the beautiful and the sensible in order to uh, respond to the, the challenge of secularism. Yeah. Well, well, just to put it, just to put it quite, um, quite uh, simply, I think in terms of in terms of reaching out to the world out there, um, I am suggesting, I'm not suggesting that, you know, preaching the gospel and using rational well, reason-based apologetics is is wrong or ineffective or anything like that. But I wonder if, in living in the age where we are, where you know the question of the question of what is true, um, the question of what is rationally right, might not be the thing that the culture is most concerned with anymore. And you know, I think that I won't elaborate on that, but hopefully, it's obvious what I mean by that. I wonder in that kind of culture, if the aesthetic pre pre presents us with a dimension which can connect with people um, in, in, in terms of a felt need, but without having to address the issue up front and center of, well, let's have some kind of you know, reasoned debate about whether or not Christianity is true. So to, to give an example of this, um, I remember reading an article in The Telegraph a few years ago, which said that... Uh, 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 out of the proportion of people who had been converted, young people who had been converted to Christianity recently, I can't really remember exactly the statistics, but say, you know, Christian, uh, a number of people converted to Christianity under, under the age of 30, um, a, a significant proportion of them said that the beginning of their Christian journey began 
because of some kind of aesthetic dimension, such as visiting a cathedral and being overwhelmed by the sense of the transcendent. Um, and so I just I just offer that as an example. I think that there are many, many other examples of the way that the aesthetic can impact people. But Christianity has an, an amazing aesthetic component to it. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost funny saying it because it's so it's so obvious. You know, if you think about what, what Christianity has contributed to to world culture, it's arguably the greatest influence on 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 culture of any civil of any movement within any civilization ever so we've got this we've got this great aesthetic component you know music architecture um, literature um and 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 so on and so forth which we can offer to people and it doesn't have to be a rational thing it's just it's just you know in offering that that beauty to people it's something which appeals to their souls you know appeals to their heart and can win them. So that's in that's in terms of you know giving a kind of um, a, an answer to the thing about outreach. I think internally um, there is a there is a there are a couple of things here. There's there's an issue of well, I suppose one of the one of the questions would be about how people are formed. And I do I do believe that people are formed rationally. You know, we are formed through our minds and through what we hear and learn and understand and all that kind of thing. But we're also formed on an aesthetic basis as well. So, so we're formed by what we what we love, what our hearts are moved by, and we're also formed by what we participate in as well. And so, I think when you when you think about when you think about Catholic practice, um, liturgy, beauty, and so on, Catholic practice appeals to those those things. So, it, so in a in an ideal world, you would have the kind of You'd have the word preached, you know, you'd have um, reason based um, arguments and sermons and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you'd also have an aesthetic component to to the church and the way it operates as well in preaching. But, you know, in liturgy, uh, in the beauty of um, in the beauty of the liturgy and the beauty of the architecture and so on and so forth. And then I think the final thing which I which I include within the category of the aesthetic is is the sacramental practice of the church as well and again i think this in more denuded forms of christianity i think those forms find it hard to account for sacraments because they are more rational or more sort of cognitive based expressions of christianity in a in a catholic understanding the sacrament it is it is related to the word of course and it is it is related in that sense to something that's going on in your minds, but it's also it's also forming you on a kind of effective level as well as you participate in. And of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit is very present in all of that as well. So, so there's a couple of thoughts there. Yes, and and I think you're definitely onto something. I've met several people in the past few weeks that have told me it was by singing in a church choir that they came to open up to the the truth of Christianity, or you know, by encountering beautiful church architecture that, that they came to think there could be something higher than, you know, mass culture and sort of ugly way that a lot of people around them were living their lives. And so I just, on the ground, I, I definitely think we, what you're arguing is true. That's, that's, a, that's very encouraging, Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and so, but in, in your own experience and observation, you pick up on a few examples in your book of 
of, of works of art that kind of testify to this beauty or even works of art that, that testify to the longing for some something more than what's on offer in a sort of um, secular culture with a flattened horizon. Yeah. So what are what are a few artistic examples that, that could point us in the right direction when it comes to what you're arguing? Oh, so point us in the right direction. Okay. Um, well, so so I'm, I was kind of looking at both sides with the way yeah, I was framing. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, so uh, I, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I've already I, for me a big a big kind of leitmotif of this whole thing is about is about church architecture, right? So so this is this is for me um, the 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 greatest example of what I mean. So I've got this quotation from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, which is fr- which is from. Um, human or to human where he talks i'm not going to do it justice but but he talks about um he talks about the way that the metaphysical imagination of christianity produced things like the gothic cathedral at chartres um and you know michelangelo's frescoes and i forget or maybe maybe the poetry of dante i can't exactly remember ex- the yeah, yes, he, he mentions the poetry of Dante. Yeah, yeah. So those are the three examples, I think. So, so, so that was inspired by the metaphysical imagination of Christianity. And Nietzsche's point is, now that that metaphysical imagination is impossible, we don't know what's going to happen. He's not saying it will necessarily be worse, but he's saying we're losing this, right? And so, so for me, so for me, the the Gothic cathedral is the you know it's the example par excellence in terms of in terms of what it represents as the culmination of Christian culture, you know, not just in terms of a beautiful and transcendent building, but in terms of the way that it incorporates all the, all the visual arts, you know, with um, stained glass windows depicting uh, not just biblical scenes, but also life in, in, in medieval, in medieval society, Um, the way that, you know, stone is manipulated and and utilized for um, flora and fauna to to um to evoke god's creation the way that uh, you know the the wooden stools are carved in order to uh, depict again scenes of life but also mythological creatures as well angels um you know angels in the rafters and and um and demons and 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 basically basically the gothic cathedral is a microcosm of god's creation uh, through the medium of of human artistic in- endeavor so that that for me would be the number one example it's something i talk about quite a lot in the book and, and how that plays out in our culture the the longing for the the transcendent is something i talk about um i actually use quite a few uh, examples from literature here because this is something that's i've been aware of actually since since a teenager that that there's this that there's this aspect in in uh, modern literature and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this as well clinton it first became clear to me when i was reading uh, the Catcher in the Rye when I was when I was 15 um, a lot of modern literature and a lot of it is very popular modern literature as well speaks of what what Taylor calls um, he, he refers to as the search for fullness and I, I can't remember whether he uses this word but I certainly use the word flatness by which I mean a kind of metaphysical flatness now Taylor says just to put it succinctly that because religious belief is a kind of contested area now, we're all beset by what he calls cross pressure. So that whatever position you take, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or new age or an atheist or Muslim or whatever, if you live in Western culture, you're beset by doubt, 
right? And, you, and this is inevitable because you're surrounded by people who, who have different views of reality uh, to you. So we're, we're, we're beset by doubt. We're also beset by a kind of menu of options, even if, we're, even if we've already chosen. And the other thing he says is that we're all, we're all searching for, for fullness. And by that, he means the place at which you feel most full, most contented, um, you know, most fulfilled in, in who and what you are. Now, one of the sort of implicit critiques of the secular, I would say, that's in, in Taylor, although Taylor's obviously um, always very balanced, the implicit critique is that for, for people who don't have a kind of uh, a metaphysically transcendent horizon, that search for fullness is always going to contain a kind of emptiness or a sense of loss in some way. And that's why I, that's why I talk about flatness, because I think that flatness kind of describes what I mean. It's this it's this sense that it's this it's this sense that your life is is beset by imminence, that there's a kind of and this he does use the language of imminence as well when he's talking about the imminent frame and so on. It's like there's a kind of glass, you know, sort of invisible glass ceiling over your life and you can't break through to the transcendent and so what you what you end up doing is you end up looking for transcendence or at least some kind of way of escape from the imminent in certain things so so in in um i'll get to literature in a moment but some examples of this might be something like for example the way that people go to um rock concerts or go to uh, sporting um events or even you know at times that people people riot in the street or or whatever it might be that they you know they lose lose control or or subvert some kind of social norm or something or something like that lots of these things could be interpreted in that way um in terms of literature i mean when we're talking about the, uh, the catcher in the rye which isn't something i write about in, in my book but i think it's quite a good example we're talking about a young man who is beset by imminence and he's looking for some kind of deep meaning in in life but he can't find it because he's as he says everyone is fake everyone's a phony and so on and so forth a couple of other examples i used um i used uh, an example of uh, brett easton ellis who who writes about this kind of thing quite a lot uh, american psycho is, is a good example of this you know this 80s banker who's very, very rich, very, very wealthy, very successful, very attractive. He can, you know, have any woman he wants. He's at the top of his game. He's, you know, physically like a, you know, like a chiseled uh, Adonis, uh, but he's deeply, deeply empty. And his, his life, he feels that his life is completely meaningless. And so he engages in, in a, a series of uh, ritual murders of, of prostitutes. Um, another author who is, who is one, of, one of my favorite contemporary authors is Michelle Welbeck, who who writes a, a lot about this his characters are it has to be said his main characters are basically the same in every single one of his books um disaffected uh sort of um 40 year old parisian who for whatever reason male prisoner parisian who for whatever reason is becoming deeply disaffected with his place in society and so seeks for some kind of transcendence usually through sexual relationships but but that transcendence is always to a to a in some way denied either through the either through the experiences themselves or because something comes in and cuts off the transcendence so in, in Welbeck for example there's one novel which ends with um, his lover being killed by um, Islamic terrorists uh, there's another one where 
the the character's lover is is paralyzed um because i think it's through an accident falling down the stairs but 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 you you see what you see what i mean another author i think writes about this kind of stuff but i don't know as well is david foster wallace he would be he would be another one um so so yeah so those those are some examples okay thank you for those examples because i think they paint a picture of the problem that you're trying to address and also the opening to faith that you are trying to, to, to walk through or lead people through uh, throughout the book. And, and so I guess this is now, uh, as you know, uh, my, my fellow host, the, the part of the podcast where we usually ask people to kind of um, take the lead and, and, and walk us through the, the, where the argument goes in, in, their, in their work. And so what I would ask you to kind of explain, so you have this, this um, initial attraction to the beautiful and the sensible and its integral role in Christianity. You know that that's absent in many popular expressions of Christianity right now. So, so that's one problem. Yeah. Th- then you have this second problem. This s- secularism has arisen and flattened the horizon for many people, so they can't imagine or participate in a religion, but they're not quite satisfied or they're even extremely dissatisfied, even when they achieve the the things that the culture tells them should be their ultimate goals. So our culture celebrates um, youth. It celebrates the achievement of personal ambition and self-actualization, and and, and it celebrates um, sexual satisfaction. And yet it seems like in a lot of these stories, these people are able to, you know, attain what they desire uh, in terms of self-actualization or, or um, physical desires or, or sexual desires or what have you. And yet they're still left feeling empty. And so fr- from there, it seems like you, you, this leads us to the three major thinkers that, that you present as sort of conversation partners. When you're talking about aesthetic ecclesiology, we have Charles Taylor on secularism. John Milbank uh, and Rowan Williams giving a sort of Anglican theological engagement with this problem of secularism. So can you take us from there? How how do we go from this sort of opening to where, where you want us to um, what you want us to explore and meditate on and consider going forward? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, so let's, let's try and, um, Let's try and go through these three thinkers. So, so for 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 the for my argument, Taylor is really setting up this problem. He's not necessarily providing he's not providing the 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 argument of the book. He's setting up the problem in terms of the kind of the lack of transcendent horizon. So, I've talked already about cross pressure. Um, I've talked a bit about fullness. Um, the imminent frame and the buff itself are kind of the way that Taylor talks about the anthropological nature of modernity. So the imminent frame is is um, is the sort of the way that we see ourselves with relation to um, to the transcendent. So some people spin the imminent frame as open, some people spin it as closed. But there's always a question as to whether or not we want to do that. Whereas in say the year 1500, people were just open to the transcendent there was no sort of barrier if you see what i mean the buff itself is a similar is a similar concept so so taylor taylor sets up the issue and and as i say the the central sort of 
takeaway that I, I, I use in the book is this, this thing about there being in modernity as a result of this genealogical sweep, which, which Taylor lays out for us. I won't go into all of that because I don't think that's, that's essentially germane to the argument, but, but, but because of, because of developments in, in, in the high middle ages and then coming through the reformation and the early modern period, we now have this kind of, we now have this kind of um, break, this conceptual break between, between nature and grace. So we see ourselves um, embedded in nature um, or let's say embedded in the imminent, but the transcendent is always an option. And, and for many people, it's an option that they've ruled out. So, so there's a, there's a fundamental con- um, a concept, a fundamental conceptual break between the imminent and the transcendent, which simply wasn't there in say the year 1500 and, and previous. Um, now, what, what, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a situation in, in which, in which people still long for the transcendent and want the transcendent, but a lot of the time they don't know they don't know where to find it or they don't know they don't even know what the problem is or they don't even know how to to frame frame the question i suppose a lot of this is kind of predicated upon my my view which is that i mean well maybe it's not my view maybe it's just orthodox christianity but it's that god is god is somehow present in his creation in a way which is tangible and speaks to the human heart right so so that's true within um, nature because God created the world, um, but it's also true in the way that God communicates himself to us through the material world, specifically in, in the sacraments. And this is something, it's not just a Catholic idea, it's something that Martin Luther believed in, and wrote about as well. So, so people, are, people want the transcendent, they search for it, they need it. And again, this is a very Taylorian notion in modernity, he, he talks about the Nova effect, which is this kind of proliferation of options for finding for finding some kind of depth or meaning to life. And, and that that could include um, new age remedies or, you know, neo-paganism or, or whatever it might be. But essentially, people are searching for some kind of transcendence. You get you get you get certain types of people, you know, your Richard Dawkins types who are just willing to say, oh, you know, just everything's DNA. And and we just dance to its music. But those those people, I would argue, are, are, are sort of relatively insignificant minority of people. The, the vast majority of people know that there's something more to life than just just the material and they and they want to find it. So that's that's how we're that's how we're set up. OK. Now, what I want to do with with somebody like John Milbank in this book is to use his to use his metaphysical insights um, to to formulate an orthodox Christian metaphysics, but could but one that could also uh, speak to that need. So, for example, I in in I talk about uh, Milbank's uh, metaphysics of, of nature and grace, which he really picks up on um, Henri de Lubac and the kind of Nouvelle theology or theology uh, uh, folk. You know, the, the Catholics from the, the early twentieth century. Um, one of the significant and so, so that's about that's about trying to reconceptualize the relationships of the realms of nature and, and grace. I know that's a fraught area, and we've we've spoken about that personally a lot. For one of the one of the issues, another another one of the issues for Milbank is this idea about the ontology of peace and the ontology of violence. Central central aspect of his book, theology and social theory, is that modernity is predicated on what he calls an ontology of violence, which is basically an ontology of primal conflict that reality at its bottom, at its base, 
is is a play of competing and violent and antagonistic forces. And he calls he calls this a Christian heresy. He he considers this a heresy which has grown out of Christianity. And what he what he posits in its place is a is a reading of Augustine's City of God, which which articulates what he calls an ontology of peace, which is that at at the heart of all of reality is God. And God is fundamentally peace, beauty, and love and and other things proportion harmony if you want to put it in more kind of aesthetic terms um so that's reality that's what's real and that's what god donates in creation that's what creation is fundamentally in itself what happens is sin comes in and it it distorts that original creation so the 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 powers of sin and death but those are not fundamental to creation they are intruders, you know, in the same way as the snake in the Garden of Eden is an intruder. You know, it shouldn't be there. It's not right for it to be there. And so when I talk about the ontology of peace, I link that to ecclesiology by by saying that the church can consider itself to be an instantiation of an ontology of peace. Now, this is a kind of um, protological thing in the sense that the church could could literally think of itself as a kind of a new a new creation if you like which is which is free is freed or at least being freed from the effects of sin and death or it could think of it in a kind of eschatological way as well you know that the church is kind of an anticipation of god's new world in the eschaton and so if you think about this in a, in in aesthetic terms um this this makes a lot of sense of you know why 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 buildings like gothic cathedrals because they're antechambers of heaven why um why liturgy uh, why why beauty in liturgy why proportion harmony and and, and beauty in, in liturgy for so and so on but it can also be thought of in ethical terms as well because um because in loving one another in forgiving one another and being reconciled to one another we are instantiating the kingdom of god which is to come so there's so I so there's a kind of aesthetic way that you can think about ecclesiology using um, Milbank's theology, and then when I come in to talk about Rowan Williams in the fifth chapter, I'm kind of just using using him in a cynical way, but using Rowan Williams' uh, theology, or at least his, his his ecclesiology, in order to talk about things which are are much more straightforward kind of um, Catholic concepts. So the the eucharist um the episcopate and the apostolic succession now what i want to argue here is that this aspect of the church is is a is a is an aesthetic aspect it's something which has an aesthetic component to it it's about the way that the church appears in the world and it's also fundamental and constitutive to the church's identity that um that that god has set the church up in this way for a reason and it's it's so that the church might be unified and through the episcopate and through the eucharist and so on and so that the church might manifest christ um throughout throughout history throughout geography throughout cultures and so on and so forth um but it nevertheless still be connected um in that in that catholic way so in terms of what, therefore, the church has to offer to a secular age, I, I suppose central to my argument is that the church can think of itself in these kind of 
using these aesthetic categories and then it can kind of present those those aesthetic categories to the world as a sign as a sign of god um and it and as i say it doesn't need to be i i'm thinking of the aesthetic in quite a broad way so i'm thinking about it yes in terms of liturgy sacraments uh, the episcopate and so on but i i think there's that's also connected to the 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 aesthetic elements of it in terms of art you know in terms of the way that the church presents the message of the gospel or its message in cathedrals in beautiful church buildings in in um in music in poetry in literature and liturgy you know in, in the in the writing of liturgy or in the writing of prayers or whatever uh, as well so um and i suppose then the corollary to that is that all of this is a kind of pedagogy for christians as well that that we we don't just we're not just formed cognitively as i was saying but we're also formed aesthetically or on that kind of effective level uh, as well that one of the authors that first got me thinking about that was um james k smith i remember reading him um some years before i did this but that was the that was the first time that 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 sort of um, occurred to me so there's a kind of pedagogical element to the aesthetic and there's also an evangelistic element to it as well and my book is a kind of attempt to to bring all of that stuff out in a reasonably coherent way so uh so yeah that's that's the summary clinton okay so i i, I think that's helpful the, the milbank kind of gave you the metaphysical background that leads up to modernity and he also gave you a, a, a vision of orthodox christianity and how it relates to theological aesthetics and then you wanted to discuss the ways that the church appears or um, is is made is made visible to people in a secular age and and rowan williams gave you an account of that now to, to bring it back to how we sort of set up the the problem of secularism or the opening for the uh, modern self to Christianity. We were talking about literature, and I know for both of us, we studied literature before we went on to study theology. Now, you pointed toward a few works of literature that underscored the the modern self's dissatisfaction or restlessness in the in the face of this kind of um, I don't naturalism or reductionistic account of reality. Did you, in your research, come across any works of literature that uh, really did did um, narrate or describe or or embody the transcendent or or um, the discovery of the transcendent or the allure of the transcendent? Yeah. Um, so, so I I think that probably probably the the author that springs to mind most easily here is is Jared Manley Hopkins and um he's he's an author that um that Taylor does does talk about um there's a really interesting section in in a secular age where Taylor talks about the we the need that we to uh, I think he's I think the word he uses re-enchant language and he he thinks that somebody like like Jared Manley Hopkins is doing something really interesting with with language and he's almost treating language in a sort of um, sacramental sense. I'd have to go back to that and 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 sort of clarify exactly what he means by that. But yeah, I think I think for me, somebody like somebody like Jared Manley Hopkins 
has has he conveys within his poetry that sense of god's presence in creation it's not really necessary most of his stuff i'm just trying to think if this is the right thing to say but at least probably the most famous stuff that he's well known for is 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 to do with nature uh, he probably does talk about the church more than more than i was about to give him credit for um but yeah he talks about he talks about the world in this and it, you know we've talked about the sort of overuse of this word sacramental before but but in a sort of sacramental uh, sense so so um an example of a poem um that does this is is um god's grandeur where um, Taylor uh, Hopkins starts by talking about the way that the world the world is charged with the grandeur of God you know it will flame out like shining from ship foil and so on but then then the world has been crushed you know by by modernity and you know by by the industrial revolution and you know there's all this smoke and you know workers bleared with toil and all this kind of stuff um you know very sort of in in some ways um redolent of of Tolkien in in the Lord of the Rings um and then the the beautiful stanza that finishes it and for all this nature is never spent there lives the dearest freshness deep down things and though the last lights of the black west went oh morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with our bright wings uh, I think that that for me that epitomizes that sense of of the 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 presence of god the presence of the holy spirit within within creation always there always fecund always always ready to emerge uh from even the even the um the desecration that human beings um um bring to to their environment so so that that would be um that would be a good a good example for me are you are you a fan of hopkins jensen i i am a, f- a fan of hopkins and my one of my PhD supervisors actually edits the Hopkins Journal and, and has written on, on him quite extensively. And I think it's fascinating that you selected him because he was influenced by the Oxford Fathers. And I think Newman was, was actually something of a mentor to him. Mm. So, so, so I think this all connects, you know, where you ended up and the sort of theological themes that we're discussing on a regular basis. Yeah. Now we we've talked about the, the kind of literary examples of longing and encountering God. This makes me think though, also about people who are listening who, who maybe think there's something to what you're saying in terms of, Taylor's phenomenological description of what it's like to live in modernity, that there are some things that are just deeply unsatisfying about our culture's account of the purpose of life and also unsatisfying about sort of ugliness uh, of things around us. There also might be some, some Christians who go to churches that just don't particularly value the beautiful and the sensible in the ways that we're discussing. So imagine you're part of one of those two groups, you know, where, what, what are some ways that, that you might participate in uh, this, this kind of beauty or encounter the sort of mediation that you're describing? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Clinton. And, and in, in many ways, you know, it's something that I'm 
I'm still very much exploring as, as I'm sure you are as well in terms of how we might um, how we might bring to bear some of these insights in the contemporary church. Um, so so um, I think I mean, I don't I don't want to sound too sort of um, too sort of prescriptive, but I think something which people might want to consider is to open themselves up to aesthetic forms of Christianity. So just experiment, you know, go, go and sit quietly in a, in a cathedral and, and, you know, open your heart to, to, to the transcendent, you know, however you, however you want to understand that, open your heart to, to God, to the Holy Spirit, or go to, go to an Evensong. You know, if you listen, if you uh, live in, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or near a city like that, or Winchester or in London or anywhere near, near a big city in England, um see find 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 out if there's an even song next to you there's actually a really good website i forget the i forget the um address of it but there's a there's a website which lists all the choral even songs in in england might be the uk and, and when they're on um you know go go to even song and and open open yourself up to the possibility of the transcendence through through the aesthetic um that that would be one thing to do um another thing would be to attend um attends uh, catholic uh, catholic services and and to engage in a similar way i mean a lot of the time when i'm talking to people who come to my church and they they don't know what's going on because you've got all the liturgy and stuff and and they haven't been before and they don't they don't understand it i just say to them you know just just allow that to just um you know just wash over you you know don't worry if you don't know what's going on it's okay just just sit there you don't even have to stand up if you don't want to when people are standing up just just allow yourself to inhabit it and um and open yourself up and just and just sort of try and try and try and enter into it in whatever way that you you feel comfortable so i i suppose it would be that kind of thing in terms of attending stuff if it's if it's a, if it's an individual thing um, if it's just if it's if you're wondering how can I how can I sort of have um, a more aesthetic engagement with Christianity um, in a sort of devotional sense, um, you know I think it would be about it would be about liturgy and for me it would be um, you know start to read through um, start to read through the Psalter in in the Book of Common Prayer for example uh, do do that um, get a Book of Common Prayer and and, and speak through the Psalms. Uh, as they're laid out day by day and um you know try and sort of imaginatively enter into the world that is being suggested to you by these psalms and 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 see how see how you find that um yeah probably probably something along along those lines um in terms of you know getting into spiritual practices um yeah i don't know would you have anything to add to that clinton well, it's it's your day, Father Jamie. Your book just <laughs> yeah, came but I'm out. interested. So, so I'm interested I, I appreciate you, you giving all giving all these uh, good insights. And the book is is very rich, so we could go on. But I actually have to go attend even song shortly. Oh, very good, very good. Speaking speaking of, uh, so, but, that's something people could do. <laughs> th thank you so much for for doing this interview and writing this book and allowing me to read it because it's quite an expensive book so, so <laughs> if, if people who are listening uh cannot afford to pick up a copy of uh, j.a franklin's uh, charles taylor and anglican theology aesthetic ecclesiology request that your library 
pick one up. And oh, hopefully uh, enough of those are purchased that a, a paperback edition comes out and yep. more people can read this fine book someday. Yeah, I mean, seriously, if you are, if people are in educational establishments, you can ask your librarian to purchase the book and they may have budget for it. So, you know, please, please do that because that would be good. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Holy CV. If you want to email us, we love to hear from you at holycv at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at holycv1. And I expect you'll hear from us in another couple of weeks. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, Clinton. Really appreciated that. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. Bye now, everyone. Bye.